Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's good to have you here today at First Christian Church. And as Pastor Robert has already mentioned, we're very glad that you're with us today. And I know we've got some first-time guests here, and uh, it's really good to have you here at First Christian. We're going to look at some scripture together today, please. If you'd take a moment to grab a Bible, if you don't have one with you, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. We're going to read from John 17 in just a few moments from now, John 17, and it's on page 1645. If you're grabbing one of those. As a matter of fact, if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home as our gift to you, all right? And uh, including our guests with us today are a bunch of people that have usually are here in worship on Thursday nights. Emmanuel in the Wind, our motorcycle uh, bikers church, however you want to call it. We're very glad you guys are with us today. And uh, may the coming summer season be really good for you guys. <clears throat> ride well and ride safely. And we're very glad you're here today. I would like to uh, start by asking you a question, and that is, if you could change something about the world, what would it be? I mean, if, you, if it was like, okay, carte blanche, jump at it, what would you, you'd say, well, I'd want world peace. Well, that'd be something we'd all want, right? We'd all like to have world peace. Or um, how about if I could change something about the world? I'd say, I-, I want there to be no more illnesses in the world. You guys are up for that, right? How many of you would say, if I could change something in the world, I would have taxes no higher than they are right now? <laughs> Nobody put your hand up, so that means you all want higher taxes? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, you all want higher taxes? No, not that at all, right? I, I've got, if it were me, if it were me, I've got just a couple of small things that I would say could be, life could be better. Life could be better, for example, if when you, um, when I, when you and I, we go out and we work for two or three hours and we, you know, wash the car and wax and polish it and, you know, vacuum it inside and it's just absolutely pristine. Wouldn't it be nice that it wouldn't rain for three days? <laughs> Have you ever noticed you wash the car and 30 minutes later it's raining? Why is that? I've got a question about that. I want that to change. There's something else I could say would be good to be changed and that is that when it comes to change. If you ever noticed of late, I don't know why that what changed in our culture in this regard. If you go to Walmart, you go to a drive-through, and you're buying a drink or something or other, and you know the bill comes up to whatever, and you give them a bill, and you're going to get some change back. Why is it they're going to give you two fifty-seven back? Why is it they put the dollar bills in your hand first and then the change on top of it? Why is that? Would you like to change it so that when you get change out the window, they put the put the change in your hand, you put that in the car, then they give you the dollar bills. Because the other way around, it's like you're trying to crumple it all up and make sure nothing gets away. In the, have you been there? I want that to change. Can you make that happen for me, please? <laughs> please, make that change, okay? Because I think it'd be a whole lot easier if that were that way. <sighs> if you were to ask all kinds of leaders in our world, what they would do differently. You'd get a bunch of different answers. And I think if you were to ask in church, what would Jesus want to change? You'd get some answers as well. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in John chapter 17 today, really some, well, can I just put it this way? This is Jesus at, towards the very end of his life. When we read in John 17 today, he's, it's at the very end, just hours before he dies, Hours before he gets arrested and he's executed and all that horrid mess that's for our good before it begins to take place. 
He spends some time in prayer with God Almighty. And John 17 are all his words. It's fairly long, and, but I thought you needed to hear and read the whole passage of Scripture today to experience what Jesus himself had to say. So to that end, I invite you to hear Brad Barding as he comes out and um, in a voice that's way better than mine, gives you the words of Jesus from John 17. Please follow along. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in this world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Thank you, Brad. Straight up, the words of Jesus. Hours before he dies, you, if, you, if this were you, 
wouldn't you, if you know that you're about to die, you'd say the things that are most, you'd want to, what do you want to get off your chest? What do you want to just make known? That's what's going on here. What's, Jesus is, is revealing himself. What we are doing in this sermon series, and we have been throughout all of Lent, is asking, how does the Gospel of John, this writer, John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, right there, an eyewitness to all that Jesus did and saw, what does he reveal to us about Jesus? And we have right here Jesus' understanding of the really important things that are flowing from him, and he's praying to God. You know, I'm not really a three-point sermon guy. Some people are. Uh, Looking for three points in every scripture doesn't always work for me, but Ironically, in this way, in this particular passage, Jesus covers three topics. So, you want a three-point sermon from Wayne Kent? You're getting it today, okay? You would not know. This is, this, theologians call this Jesus' high priestly prayer. A very potent moment in his life where he is kind of, it's all coming down to the most important things. And what has he got to say? What is he bringing to God in prayer? Three things, first of all. Jesus understands that he is God's son that he, and that eternal life is found through him, through his life, and through his death. He says straight up that, God, you gave me the right to grant eternal life to anyone. And in verse 3, he says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. In other words, if, 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 you, if these people around me want to find eternal life, and I have come to complete this job that you gave me, God, I did what was needed. I came, I'm about to die, and it will all be complete. And eternal life comes through me. You've heard me say this before, and I want to just repeat it again. Simply with this understanding that maybe people in the room today who don't know what that means. What does it mean to have eternal life? It means to have eternal life. And it means that we get to be with God forever. There are some conditions to that, though. Scripture is very plain that the condition is this. We need to allow Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior, is how people used to say it in generations gone by. And we go, in our world, what does that mean? What is Lord and Savior? When we say Savior, we mean that he is our forgiver, that because of the work that Jesus did on the cross and the way in which his, literally his blood covers our sin, that when God sees our sin, he doesn't actually see the sin, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sin is forgiven and he is our forgiver. You could say that he is our Savior, he is our forgiver. And then we say when he is our Lord, based on the fact that our sins have been forgiven, then we choose to allow him to be in charge of our lives. We let him be our leader. Today, if you've made a decision to follow Christ, then you would say, he is my leader and forgiver. And if you've never made that decision, I'm going to be certain you'll hear very clearly before the end of our time together today, you will have that opportunity to make Jesus Christ the leader and forgiver of your life. But then secondly, beyond making that declaration to God in heaven, Jesus prays then regarding some concern that he had for his disciples, the ones who have chosen to follow him already. Now, I find it quite remarkable, really, that here's the Son of God praying for his disciples, and obviously by praying for his disciples, he's expecting God in heaven to respond and to answer. And sadly, it seems to me that there are many people, even followers of Jesus Christ, who, well, they pray, but you don't really expect God to answer, do you? Well... That's not, that's not how Jesus approached life. He prays and expects God to respond. And if Jesus prayed and expects heaven to answer, then shouldn't we live our lives accordingly? 
I don't want to be known as a Christian who doesn't expect God to be engaged in our lives. I'm reminded of a scene years ago in a, in a little town where, well, they'd never had this happen before. A rather sordid type of business arrived in town where they were going to be doing all kinds of crazy stuff. You know what I mean. We don't want that in our town. That's what the sayings were. And so the local church, they decided they'd, they'd, they'd have a prayer meeting about it. And maybe God in heaven, well, but we'll pray about it nonetheless. And they prayed that God would get rid of that sordid business. And sure enough, they have this all-night prayer meeting. And towards the end of the meeting, this, light of, this, this bolt of lightning comes out of the sky and hits that building. And it burns to the ground. The owner of the club, when he learned that the church had been praying against the club, sued the church. And the church said, it's not our fault. And they went to court. And the judge, when he was evaluating everything, it seems that I don't know exactly where the guilt may lie. But I'm quite clear of this. The nightclub owner obviously believes that you prayed and God answered. But the church apparently doesn't. Jesus prayed for his disciples, expecting that heaven would respond. Jesus prayed interceding, if you will, is another word for praying, interceding for his disciples, expecting that heaven would respond. And now, can I tell you that Jesus is still in heaven interceding for you in a little bit different way than praying for you? This is what the scriptures say in this regard. Just as Jesus prayed for his disciples, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, Jesus is interceding for you in a new way. The Bible tells us that there is a battle going on in the heavens. In some place beyond the universe, in some dark hole where light gets sucked in and it goes backwards and the, all the gravity is all weird and wild and your hair stands on and I don't know where it is. But the scripture says that in some place beyond the world and the universe as we see it, there is a battle taking place between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And that the forces of evil are being led by none other than Satan himself. And when we say the word Satan and that name, do you know what it really means? It means accuser. The accuser is leading the forces of evil. And the accusers, one of the main things that the accuser, Satan, is doing is going before God. We have examples of this in Scripture, for example, in the book of Job, where Satan goes before God and says, do you see that guy down there? Look at all his frailties. Look at all how bad off he is, pointing out sins and ugliness in our lives. See that guy, Wayne Kent, God? Look at all of his ineptness. Look at all of his, all of his anxieties. As a matter of fact, God, look at all his sins. He's an ugly so-and-so. But you know what Scripture says? In the midst of that battle, in the midst of those accusations that come against me or that come against you and they're being brought before God, Jesus, the scripture says, is standing between Satan and God, acting on our behalf, if you will, the heavenly defense lawyer with Calvary in his back pocket. The ultimate piece of evidence for the defense is that Jesus came, he died, and that his blood covers my sin. And he is standing before God saying, no, Wayne Kent is forgiven. Do you know how Paul the Apostle put it? Romans chapter 8. 
He says, who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who has the ability to, if you will, bring a charge or some sort of defamation against those who follow God? Who is then is the one who is condemning us? Who condemns us? Well, we'll say Satan is doing that. The Bible tells us that. But has that charge got any any validity? No one has that validity because Jesus Christ, it says, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. And as a result, who can separate us from the love of Christ? See, Jesus right now, friends, is at God's right hand, nullifying any charge brought against you. Nothing, nothing separates you from the love of God if you've chosen to follow him. Jesus is not in heaven on some vacation right now, vacating from his role as the eternal shepherd. Sometimes people think, well, you know, he, he died, he rose again, and he went to heaven, and now he's just up there lounging, waiting for us all to show up. No, that's not what Scripture says. He is reminding Satan of your blood-bought salvation. He is reminding the heavens of your forgiveness of sins. We are no longer dirty, rotten sinners, but we are, in fact, the redeemed of God Almighty. Read aloud again now with me from Romans chapter 5 of how Jesus is, how his work on the cross has been made greater by his life now in heaven, not just by his death here on earth, but his life in heaven. Would you read this aloud with me? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Friends, he's not on vacation waiting for you to show up in heaven. He's there proclaiming your salvation already. He's not like me. I mean, I, I, I know that as, if you will, somebody who has a career in ministry, that I'm supposed to do what Jesus did. But the truth be told, I take a vacation now and then. It's always weird for me. I must tell you that. There's always this thought at the back of my mind when we get in the car, we're going to go to the airport or we're going to drive somewhere and you know, you wonder, okay, what if something weird happens at the church while I'm gone? What's the level of weirdness? What's the level of crisis that needs to happen that should cut my vacation short? Gracefully, in the congregation like this, we have a multi-layered staff and multi many pastors on staff, and so crisis moments are not so problematic anymore. But I remember in the early days of my ministry, I've been doing this now for more than 30 years. I remember in, in the early days, particularly when we served the church in Tulsa, when I was the only, pa only full-time employee of the church, that when, when we would go on vacation, there'd always be this, <gasps> what if? One time when the kids were little, they're about five, Jack, Jacqueline was about five, Ben would have been about two, we got in the car late one night and we drove all the way to North Carolina where Leslie's parents lived. It was 1,100 miles. We drove at night because we do the same thing that you, we did the same thing that many of you do. It's way easier to manage your kids when they're asleep. <laughs> I mean, you love your kids, don't you? Do you love your kids? You love your kids, but you don't love them during the day on an 1,100 mile trip, do you? <laughs> you don't love them then. Who are we kidding? You don't, you don't even like them. No, kids, we really do like you. <laughs> so we had driven all the way through the night, 1,100 miles, 20 hours by the time you stop because you go to the bathroom a lot when you've got little kids, okay? 20 hours, we got there. We're just kind of relaxing late in the evening, and the phone rang. There was a crisis back in Tulsa. A 20-year-old young man from our congregation had died in, in an accident. And I remember... What do we do? 
put the kids back in the car and we rushed home. That was our vacation that year. But I've got good news for you. Jesus is not in North Carolina vacating. He's not surprised by your life situation. He's not at Myrtle Beach in South Carolina soaking up the sun today in some heavenly version of Myrtle Beach. He's not at Universal Studios somewhere in some heavenly version of Universal Studios checking out the latest Harry Potter ride. He's not there. May I remind you that Jesus Christ himself is the Son and his power goes far beyond any magical wand in a movie. Jesus is today reminding Satan's of your allegiance to Christ and the forgiveness of sins that you've already experienced. Jesus is interceding for us today. This is what John reveals. Your pathway between you and God. If you've made a decision to make Jesus Christ the leader and forgiver of your life, I've got really good news for you. Your sin is gone. The pathway between you and God is all clear. All clear. This past week, many of you know that our family had the memorial service for my father-in-law. He died about 10 days ago. And on behalf of the family, can I just say, thank you indeed for the many graces and comforts and hugs and cards. And I mean, we, 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 are, we have been blessed beyond words by your grace in our lives. On Monday night when we held the memorial service here, I told a story that I want to tell you right now about being all clear. Um, my father-in-law's parents were Cobert and Fanny Wilson. Cobert, C-O-B-E-R-T. Not Colbert, but Cobert. They're from the mountains of North Carolina, and uh, I was lucky enough to meet them and spend time with them before, you know, after we were married and before they passed away. And they were great people, mountain folk, mountain. I mean, there's, there's stories in their family about the cousins pull their own teeth with pliers and that sort of stuff. I'm not into that, just want you to know. We stopped that with my version of the family. But nonetheless, Cobert, when he was a younger man, had an accident of some sort, and he could only turn his head to the left. He couldn't turn his head to the right, which is okay. He survived the accident, but it's it's difficult driving because you only know if the traffic's coming from the left-hand side, right? (laughs) You want to know who's coming from the right. So he would, if he was driving, he'd have to kind of twist his body and go like that, except if Fanny was in the car. Different story. They'd come to a T-junction, a stop sign, whatever the case, and he'd look left, and he would see if there was any traffic coming. And he'd go, Fanny. And she'd, she'd, she'd eyeball to the right. That's how she said it. And she'd go, clear, Colbert. <laughs> and off they'd go. I want you to know, I want you to know, friends, Jesus Christ is looking on either side. And he's looking far ahead of you. And he's saying, Claire. All of your sin is gone, and he is interceding on our behalf right now. You have eternal life through Jesus Christ. You have Jesus here in John 17 praying for his disciples that they would be protected, he said, from the evil one. The evil one has no authority over you, friends. And then thirdly, do you notice what he says, that who, who he's praying for? John 17, verse 20. He's not only praying about the fact that he's offering eternal life. He's not only praying for those who are already his followers. But look at verse 20. says, my prayer is not for them alone, not just for my present disciples. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. 
And you notice what he prays for? Those of us who are now believing in Jesus Christ as a result of the disciples' work, you notice what he prays for? He doesn't pray for world peace. He doesn't pray that there would be um, no illness. He doesn't pray that we would have little life conveniences like no rain after we wash our cars or change coming through the window in a better, better fashion. Now, what does he pray about? Here is just moments, hours before he's to die, and he says, that for the people moving forward, this is what I pray about. He says, I pray that they would be unified. He says, may they be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. Based on our unity as his followers, then the world will know you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Wow. In other words, the degree that we get along together, our various ideas, our various life approaches, but if we're all following Jesus Christ, the degree that we get along together apparently is an indication that Jesus was sent by God. In other words, his message, his ministry, his sacrificial life, uh, his agonizing death, and his triumphing victory over the grave, all of that is validated to the world by our unity. And yet here we have people of varying degrees meeting in places all that we go, oh, I can't hang with those people. They may know Jesus, but, you know, that's why I want to tell you that why our congregation continues to work on this business we call 10. Do you remember this? In the fall of 2014, we came to you as leaders of the church and said we have this deep conviction that God is calling us through the ministry of our church and through other congregations to reach into the lives of 10% of the people of our community. In the next 10 years, can we see literally around about 10,000 people come to know Jesus who aren't walking with him today? And whether or not they attend our church is not the point. Can we see new believers come to Christ over the next 10 years for our community? And we, at that point, we didn't know how we were going to do it. But then last fall, we did Room for Doubt, 24 four churches joined with us, and it was a great experience. We learned some things. We figured out how to work together. And so those churches, along with others who had heard about Room for Doubt but had chosen not to participate, approached us recently and said, can we do it again? What do you mean do it again? Can you do Room for Doubt again or some version of that, but this time can we join you? And I got to tell you, friends, this past week, I sat in a room upstairs where I mean, I've, as I mentioned, I've been doing ministry for 30 years, and I've seen pockets of congregations come together, you know, where they're all alike, the same thinking, if you will, same theology, but gathered in that room upstairs this week for an hour and 15 minutes were leaders of congregations from all across this city with various theological understandings, various political persuasions, various worship styles, all various outreaches. I'm stunned. I'm talking about everybody from the far right theologically, to the far left, theologically. It was overwhelming. And the general consensus in the room was, can you help us as a, as a community? Will this congregation help us as a community tell people that Jesus came and died for them? I am, I am absolutely overwhelmed with this. Because you know what? If we can pull that off, Jesus says, the world will know that he was sent by God and that he is the son of God based on our unity. And I've got to ask you, have you figured that out? Have you figured out, that the world, have you figured out what the world needs to hear? Have you figured out that Jesus Christ was sent by God so that we would know God, that we would have eternal life through him and that he is, his work is offered to us? 
Has that reached you? Has that message reached you? If so, here's what I'd like to suggest. We'd like to create a video in the next few weeks telling your story of how Jesus has impacted your life. How has the prayer, his prayer of John 17 changed you? I want you to visit the chalkboards. There's one outside this auditorium, one outside the East Auditorium. And I want you to go there and write. There's, there's some words at the top of each of the chalkboards that says either God is, dot, 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 or God healed, or God provided. And we're going we're gonna to make video of you writing and also video of what you do write. Short phrase, single words. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to create a video that let those boards tell your story of how Jesus Christ has come and has told you and you've learned of eternal life, how he continues to intercede on your behalf before God, and how your pressing needs are being brought to heaven and you're, we're doing it as the people of God, regardless of our political persuasion, our theological backgrounds, and so forth and so on. Because if I look around this crowd, I know we've got people of all kinds of backgrounds and some from no backgrounds at all. Right? We do. When I'm talking about church backgrounds. Some of you may not have backgrounds at all regardless, but nonetheless... As a matter of fact, so, uh, who are we kidding? Who are we kidding? All of us have got stuff buried down down here that we just, well, I hope nobody ever knows about that. Can I tell you, friend, regardless of where you've come from, Jesus Christ is lifting you up above that, and he's reminding the heavens that you're being lifted out of that. I'd like to tell you how, a way in which just this week I learned that might explain it. Perhaps you've been to Michigan, pardon me, to Michigan Avenue in in. Um, in Chicago. If you've been up there and you've walked down Michigan Avenue and you go there and there's bright lights and phenomenal merchandise that seems way overpriced at times and, and all the people and it's just like all this bustle around and you go, oh man, this is really cool up here. Chicago, this lovely town. Did you know Chicago um, back in the 1840s and 1850s was not like what it is today? It really was a cow town and with cows... It didn't smell good at all, at all. As a matter of fact, the city was an absolute mess. And when I say mess, I mean it was filthy. Disease was rampant. There were epidemics of cholera and dysentery that would erupt in that city that would go on for weeks and months at a time. Like, for example, in, in the summer of 1854, 60 people a day, 60 people a day were dying from cholera. If we had 60 people a day dying from any disease in any city in this nation, we would be alarmed. Now, sadly, it seems strange to our ears and thinkings, but in that day, in the 1850s, there was no understanding whatsoever of a connection between waste and garbage and sewage and disease. They didn't realize that if your city is dirty, people are going to get sick. If there's sewage in the streets, people, they didn't know that. Um, People actually believed in, uh, in those days, believed in something called the miasma theory. Miasma. They had this idea that there were these invisible clouds that would kind of erupt out of the ground. It's common thinking of those days. And that if you inadvertently walked through one of those clouds, you would get very sick. And so they would be, you couldn't see the cloud, you wouldn't know when it was coming. They had no understanding that, man, if we could just get the junk out of the street, less people will get sick because... Well, we don't want that there. Well, fortunately, uh, the city fathers decided they needed to do something about the filth of the town and the smell of the town, not for the sake of ridding disease, but simply to make it easier to cross the street. They actually hired um, pig farmers to bring pigs into the city to eat all the stuff. 
But even, there were some places in the city where the pigs wouldn't go. It's ugly. It's ugly. And so they said, what can we do about the filth? Well, we need to be able to wash it away. But unfortunately, you may know that in Chicago in those days, there was a problem in that regard. Because whereas other large cities had a slope to them, Chicago was flat at the time. And so even when it rained, all that would happen is the rain would come down and just kind of everything would slosh together. Can you imagine the smell? So they said, we've got to do this. They hired a young engineer, a guy by the name of Ellis Chesbro. And he said to them, I can fix this if we can put Chicago on a slope. Well, how are you going to take land and put it on a slope? The buildings are built. I mean, they have six and seven story buildings already built in the 1850s. You know what they did? He invented a way in which to lift building by building. It's called a jack screw. Maybe you're familiar with this. And they would tunnel under these. They did it to every building in the city. Hundreds of men would go underneath these buildings with hundreds of jack screws and they'd put timbers and they would jack up building by building, inch by inch by inch. And as the buildings went up, stonemasons would come along and pour new footings. And then as they were 10 feet They raised every building 10 feet. The whole city got raised by 10 feet. They would attach pipes to the sewage systems of the buildings. They'd bring those pipes out into the center of the street and they would take sludge from the river, from the Chicago River. They dredged the Chicago River and they built up all those streets 10 feet and created a slope. Since they couldn't get below the dirt, let's create a slope and put new dirt on top. That's basically what they did. And when you walk Michigan Avenue today, or any street there in Chicago, you don't know all the junk underneath your feet, do you? You're 10 feet above it. You don't know of the need that was there years ago. And you don't know the depth of the ugliness down below. And here's the point. Years ago, long before you even knew you existed, Long before you knew your need, Jesus began praying for you. And you have been lifted inch by inch. And then through the work of Jesus Christ, you've been lifted out of the mess, up out of the mud. And today he is interceding on your behalf, pointing to you and saying, there's no muck, there's no mire, there's no sludge associated with your life before God. It's all forgiven. The defense lawyer of heaven stands before God Almighty and he stands before Satan and he stands between you and your sins and your act. The accusations that would come against him. He proclaims this. He proclaims this for me. Uh, He says, I died for Wayne Kent. I died for Joe. I died for Joanna. Their sins, his sins, her sins are forgiven. It's all clear. Move forward. The mess of your sin is buried beneath the hill of Mount Calvary. See, the sewage of your bad choices, it's buried, friends. It's gone. The smell of your impure ideas, the waste of your poor life management. It's all gone. If you followed Jesus Christ, if you've made him the leader and forgiver of your life, you are forgiven. The scandals of your sorry stories, the foul orders of your far-reaching mistakes, the pong of your unclean process, thought processes, the stink of lives run amok, the depth of despairing 
self-induced disaster, the tales of tragedy conveyed with terrible trepidations, the quicksand of lies, the shame of sorry sagas, the disgraces of disgusting depravity, the embarrassment of empty errors, the evil of your ill-advised intent, the knee-deep mud of your messy morality, the stench, hate-filled language that was in your heart and that you expressed through your mouth, the reek of your sin. Do you know what, friend? It is buried under the hill of Calvary, it is forgiven. Jesus is interceding on your behalf today saying, "Mm -mm, you ain't coming close. Evil, you are not coming close. This man, this woman is forgiven. Today, he, she stands clean before God. Do that and would you stand with me and let's thank God in prayer for that. Lord God, I ask that you would hear our prayers in heaven right now. We're praying specifically right now, and like Jesus, we're expecting that you're going to respond. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. That's really good news. We thank you, Lord, for um, the way in which you prayed for your early disciples, asking God that they would be protected from the evil one, and that today you intercede on our behalf, and Lord, that we will be people of unity moving forward in that. God, hear our prayers today. I pray, Lord, for those who are are slaving under some sort of ill, uh, well, a lie that is coming from the evil one, that they could never be forgiven by you. I pray, God, for those who don't know you, for those of us who do and we're still messing with the whole thing. God, call us to get above it all to raise ourselves and be covered, that whole mess be covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.